Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 112, recorded January 26, 2013. So this is our 51st 90s episode and we're covering Deep Space Nine. Yes, yes, Deep Space Nine. Uh, the Superman Odo. The Superman Odo. Yeah, we're going to see some Superman Odo going on in some of these issues, which I kind of like. Although, uh, if there's one thing I can say is I don't remember how super he is from the show, but he's uh, he's a heck of a handy guy to have around. Right. He, like Data, I think, on the show was, was downplayed a lot is what he can do. Right. You know. We've talked about Data should have been running around like the Bionic Man or whatever, but <laughs> you never see that. So, I mean, technically Odo could be almost that powerful, but, you know, it takes a lot of uh, CG work. So we just never saw him do it in the movie, in the shows, but here in the comic book, we don't have that constraint. Right. It also just makes him a little bit, I don't know, it just makes it all a little bit more, I don't know, believable, a little less over the top when you don't have a character doing super things. Right. It just makes it a little bit more believable. Right, which is why I don't like it, why in the comic books and the novels they have Data doing that stuff that, you know, technically he could, should be able to do it, but you just don't want to see it. Or at least I don't. Yeah. So they keep it pretty much to him using his great powers as, I don't know, a flotation device in the movies? Yeah. I didn't didn't like that part either. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not yeah. talk about that one. I, you know, what's funny is I was thinking today, you know, with the new movie coming out soon, uh, what would I consider truly the worst of the Star Trek? And even though I like them all, yeah. I do think it's a toss-up between Star Trek V and Star Trek Insurrection. Insurrection. Yeah, as being my two least favorite, even though I do enjoy aspects of both. Right. And that's fine. I like the way you said that, because you said... My least favorite. My least favorite. Instead of just making some mandate proclamation of what's, oh, these are the worst for everyone. Everybody has their own opinion. Exactly. Completely agreed. I'm surprised on how many people have a strong opinion against Star Trek 2009 movie. Uh, With J.J. Abrams being announced as uh, potentially doing Star Wars, I have read tons of, you know, people making comments that you know that that they hated the way he did Star Trek, and that they're glad he's not going to be doing a third Star Trek, and blah blah blah. And I'm like, wow, I I didn't know people hated it that much. Well, because I liked it so much, I assumed everybody did. Well, there's always going to be some people that don't like a movie, right? And and, and that movie, as great and awesome as it was, uh, you know, it has its flaws. As but, all movies uh, do. And, and also, is is any of that? Kind of like the ridiculous, in my opinion, Star Trek versus Star Wars sentiment. Like, oh, Star Trek is great, Star Wars sucks, or Star Wars is great and Star Trek sucks. You know, is any of that filtering into some of these comments? Do you think? No, what what I was reading, I didn't I didn't get that feeling. 
you know, okay. of course most you don't of it know, was, but yeah, right. Obviously, I didn't. I'm only reading the little comments they had, right? You know, but they're right. saying that you know they hope that you know lightsabers can fight lens flares and things like that. So. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. So. Anyways, but no, I was just, like I said, surprised that, you know, and then I thought about it. Like, I guess there would be people out there that didn't, wouldn't care for the new movie as much as I did. Yeah. And I can't fault them for it because, as we pointed out, it's far from a perfect movie. No. No, but as long as you just sit back and enjoy the ride, it's a darn good movie. Right. Darn good. Okay. Almost like these three comics we're about to read. If you just sit back and enjoy it, you might, you might like it more. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I definitely have a strong opinions about the third issue we'll, we'll discuss today. And you'll, you'll, if you stick around, uh, our, our audience will be able to, uh, to hear a little ranting. I, I, I'll, I'll keep it cool. But let me just say one last quick thing about the announcement about J.J. doing the Star Wars movie. When I first heard this rumor, I was dreading it because of the effects it'll have on the third Star Trek movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that J.J. has to direct the third Star Trek movie. They can get other good directors to do that. It's just that look at how the second movie has been delayed because of, you know, justifiably, they got other projects going on. Not all of them turned out to be good movies that they did, but, you know, there are other projects going on. And now here is a big, whopping new project stuck in the middle, you know, basically blocking us between uh, the second and the third Star Trek movie. So, unless, of course, uh, J.J. not only passes off the direction uh, duties, but a lot more of the production. Uh, Because wasn't J.J. always going to do, well, wasn't he going to do, wasn't he contracted to do at least three movies and then, then maybe he'd be passing it on? So his production company, Bad Robot Production Company, I assume they're still going to do the third Star Trek movie. Right. Yeah. Just J.J. won't be directing, which is fine, fine. Maybe, maybe Brad bit. Bird will direct the third one. That, you know, that would be fine. That would be fine with me. Anyways, it's all still speculation. Uh, I mean, probably by the time we post this, we might know for sure. But uh, as of today, the 26th of January, it's still... It's vi- Brand new news. Yeah, it's very new news, and we haven't heard confirmation of this from all the major players involved. Right. So Disney, as far as I know, Disney has not come out and uh, made this announcement. Maybe they'll do it on Monday. So out of all the Star Trek movies, the most that any one director has directed is two, right? So Leonard Nimoy directed two, Jonathan Frakes directed two, and... And uh, the, the the guy that did Wrath of Khan came yeah. back to do six, right? Mm, did he do six? Yeah, he did six. I think did, he did. Who did? And then a brand new guy did Nemesis, right? Oh, completely new. He was very – some British guy that was very new to the franchise. Right. So aside from the guy who did Wrath of Khan, the, the second outings of every director that had multiple goes at it uh, is not as good as their first one. True. Well, even well, I mean, even part six is not as good as part two, but they're still both good. No, six was good, but you're right. It wasn't both good movies, but not as good as two. I'll agree with that. Um, so, so does that mean that Into the Darkness is not going to be as good as the first one? Oh, no. I mean, what, what, what's the other theory? Uh, what odd number Star Trek movies tend to suck? You right. know, there, there, there's which, that which theory, too. Which could have been too, the last but... one. 
11. Yes, you're right. So, so much for that theory. So we say, but obviously a lot of people on the comment section last yesterday was not do not agree with us. Well, they're not true believers. Anyway. <laughs> All right, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine, yes, and these three issues. So issues 13, 14, and 15. In, unless we have any more, I'll just jump into the 13th issue then. Please do. All right, so this came out August of 1994. So it is entitled Lapse and is written by Charles Marshall. Penciler is Leonard Kirk. Inker is Bruce McCordendale. Letterer is Patrick Osley. Color design is Moose Bauman. And color seps, I guess color separations, is Boo Tones. And editor is Mark Pansia. The cover shows Odo. Uh, attacking Cisco, Dax, O'Brien, and Kira. He has landed a mighty punch to Cisco and is, what I'm thinking, knocking him out cold. Kira is holding back his other arm to prevent him from doing the same to Dax. And we get a little bit of Odo's, you know, punch being a little uh, clay face ish, uh, where it's he's turning his arms into. Not necessarily hammers or something, but you kind of get that effect that he's he's changing his arm to something other than a hand to really whack people out. So the story actually starts off with Odo hunched down in the shadows of a corridor deep within the station. Cork finds the frightened constable and tells him that he's looking paler than normal. Odo tells him that they're all out to get him. Very paranoid. Cork tells him... That he's his friend and that he will keep him safe from the others. But first, Cork thinks that uh, Odo needs to retake his correct form. Confused, Odo does as Quark says, adjusting his face to Quark's specifications until he has reshaped himself into looking like a Ferengi. The narration then breaks the fourth wall and starts addressing the reader directly. Something like... If this looks strange to you, imagine how Odo is feeling. We then flash to earlier in the day, and Cisco is informing the operations crew that they're going to partake in a security drill. Odo has devised a scenario where he will hide in the station and the crew have to find him without using internal sensors. Bashir then barges in and tells everybody that they need to take their flu shot. He goes around and gives everybody their vaccination. Odo refuses, since he cannot obviously get the flu since he's made out of liquid. But Cisco makes him do it anyways, gives him a direct order, and the shot is given to the shapeshifter. Odo then leaves Ops, and the drill has started. Odo is in the bowels of the station when he starts to feel some ill effects to the shot. He is wondering what is going on when Bashir stumbles upon him. Odo becomes very paranoid and attacks Bashir before running off. Bashir contacts Sisko and tells them that Odo has lost it and that the drill has become a real emergency. Odo then is found by Quark, and a page is wasted using the same dialogue and the same art from the beginning. So Quark gets him to make his, save, his face look like uh, Ferengi. In Ops, O'Brien has locked onto Odo's signal and beams him into ops instead of odo cork materializes dax 
realizing that this is an error of some sort, lowers the security field to get Quark off the platform. As soon as the field is dropped, Quark reshapes into Odo and he lashes out at everyone. He crushes some consoles in the attack. O'Brien starts to use a phaser on him, but Kira stops him and Odo escapes. Odo continues to flee from everybody he happens to come across. He thinks that everyone is out to get him. He even turns into liquid at one point and goes down a drain to get away from a couple of people walking down the hall. To himself, he thinks that he's getting weaker every time he changes. He stops to rest, and Kira shows up. She pleads with him to settle down and that she's only there to help. With a soft touch on his hand and then on his shoulder, Odo relaxes and walks with the Major. As they are walking down the corridor, a metal cube is thrown at them. Odo accuses Kira of leading him into a trap as the cube creates a sphere that captures him. O'Brien shows up and he's very pleased with his ozone trap. Odo gathers his strength within the sphere and breaks out. He liquefies himself and escapes through an air vent. Sometime later, Bashir finds a puddle of liquid. A quick scan confirms that he has found Odo. Within Odo's mind, he remembers his first waking moment on this side of the wormhole. He remembers being a lab subject for the Bajorans. He remembers being a guard for the Cardassians. Then he remembers his friends with the Federation and his quest for justice. Justice, that is who he is. That is what he is. With that, he wakes up to everyone standing around him. Still later, Odo pays Bashir a visit at the infirmary to allow the doctor to scan him to prevent anything like this from happening again. He only has one condition, though. No shots. The end. Interesting. That's a, I, I thought it was a nice little issue. Yeah, one-off. Yeah. Um, gives us an opportunity to see what Odo is capable of, which we normally don't see that much. I mean, shape-shifting, yes, but uh, exactly how strong and formidable he can be. Normally we don't quite see that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Clayface in my synopsis just because in the comic books that's, you know, he he's a shapeshifter that fights against Batman in case you don't know who he is, Ken. Yeah, I know who he is. Okay. Well, he's not been in a movie yet, so I thought maybe you didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah, this this episode definitely or this issue made me think of Clayface quite a bit with uh him being able to form weapons and stuff out of his arms even though he doesn't actually form weapons but you could think that he could and maybe that that's what he's doing when he's yeah i mean you would think that he's not just slapping wet noodle arms on him even though that's what it kind of looks like (laughs) yeah another thing he looks like is uh mr fantastic especially when he's breaking out of the ozone trap oh yeah uh yeah what is that uh I, i don't recall the page but um page 20 So he breaks out of the ozone trap, and his entire uh, stomach area is stretched as, you know, his chest up looks normal, but his middle is completely elongated as he breaks out of the the circular, quote, ozone trap. So he he reminds me also, at least in that panel, of Mr. Fantastic. Or Plastic Man. Yeah. Why why didn't you go with Plastic? In the classic days. Well, because... 
Well, why do you think? I mean, I, I grew up with Fantastic Four, and I at one point in time, Fantastic Four was my number one comic, even over Spider Man. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, you had a. I knew you liked Green Lantern. I didn't know you liked Fantastic Four too. Well, yeah. So early, early days, Green Lantern. Later, when I was really getting a lot of comics, Fantastic Four, and then I slipped into Spider-Man. Mm. And then yeah. I kind of got out of comics. Anyway. Until so, until you met me and I got you back in. <laughs> you got me back in, yes, exactly. You pulled me back in. Anyway. Yeah, so and another, yeah, another thing is Odo... Odo also seems to be very strong, or he seems to be able to use his morphing ability to give himself great strength. Because um, right. he does seem to have pretty pretty impressive strength going on. Yeah, anytime he hits somebody, they're, they're going out. <laughs> they're going down, especially Bashir. He really wops Bashir. Let me go back and look at that one. Oh, yeah, he does. Oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and obviously he's got a lot of strength to be able to break out of the quote ozone trap. And by the way, what's an ozone trap? Anyway, I'm not going to ask the question it's too much. It's just Odozone trap. Oh, Odozone trap? I don't know. No, no, no. That's the only thing I could think of or is it actually made out of <laughs> ozone gas? I, I didn't think that would I thought he was just I I, I I think it was just some Yeah, it, it, they they just said, "Hey, how about the word ozone?" Okay, fine. We'll use that word. But it's actually hyphenated. It's O hyphen zone. So it's not like ozone, the gas. So right. That's why I thought it was like Odo zone. Yeah. Well, yeah, anyways. I, think, I thought yeah. O'Brien was out of character where he was wanting to blast him and then he's building these elaborate traps to catch him. Well, yeah, in a way. But I also think he was the much more practical one than Kira. It's like when he had a shot. At stunning Odo. I mean, phasers do stun Odo, right? I mean, they don't. I mean, even if you've got a phaser set to stun, it doesn't give him long-term ill effects, does it? I don't remember. I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. Uh, but you know, his physiology is so different from humanoids. It's like who knows? And of course, they can make up whatever they want because this is all fiction. But it's like, yeah, stun his butt. He's kicking our. He's kicking our butts here. <laughs> Stun him. It's for his own good. He could end up hurting himself. Anyway. But that would have stopped the story, so we had to keep the story going. Right. Right. So we've mentioned it before about Odo, his his powers of shape-shifting and how he can shape-shift into anything except a human or Bajoran face. <laughs> Very handy. Right. So, I mean, if he's just turning himself to liquid to... Uh, slither down a drain or through an air vent or whatever, that's one thing, but to be able to perfectly form himself to look like Quark, yeah, that one I didn't buy. No. I, and I, no. I don't buy that he could turn himself into a perfectly looking goose or or bird or whatever that, that we see him do in the show all the time. Yeah, I, I agree. That, that's always been a that's always been a criticism out there, and I completely agree with it. Right. Although, I mean, did, did, didn't he turn himself into like a glass of water or something? Yeah. Anything ridiculous like that? And I know in the comics he turned himself into a backpack that Kira, not Kira, uh, Dax, Dax was carrying. I mean, so wouldn't her back be really hurting uh, carrying around Odo for that long? <laughs> I don't know. Well, see, and that's another thing they, they're kind of inconsistent on. Does he always have the same mass and weight no matter yes. what he 
changes yep. into because I've seen him change into little rats and stuff. And are you are we supposed to really believe that it's a hundred and seventy five pound rat uh, or exactly. what, however much Odo weighs? Right. So yeah, yeah, I agree. So, anyways, that's enough nitpicking about Odo. Yeah. Although that he's a he's a he's a big player in this issue. Oh yeah. Well, it, uh, yeah. And the thing is, he's always around. He's always the good guy, but normally. But it's kind of like when Data gets reprogrammed to do things he shouldn't do, or he has an entity take over his body. You start going, ooh. You know, if they wanted to, they could be really destructive, a real formidable uh, force. So it's kind of interesting to flip it and and see exactly how much of a, a negative influence they could be in the right scenario. Right, which this comes before any of the founders in the TV right. show. Right. But when the founders show up later in, in the Deep Space Nine series, I mean, they're like that. I mean, one changeling on on the ship takes down quite a few people, right? Oh yeah. So yeah, I do find it funny that this does predate <clears throat> the introduction of the founders in the overall series. Right, which really does underscore the possible danger if Odo f- changes allegiances. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so on page on page twelve, when Odo had gotten out of the transporter trap. Mm-hmm. and was jumping at everybody. I thought that was very cool at the bottom of page 12 where he's jumping at them and he's got his hands turned into claws and stuff. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that is cool. And they're very surprised. <laughs> as well, <laughs> as they would be. I mean, jeez. <laughs> I mean, especially with the claws and everything. I think that was very, very cool. Right. And then on page 14, that's where I was... Uh, it shows Odo actually turning his arm into like a hammer and knocking Cisco back. Right. So that's where I was getting the Clayface vibe. vibe. There you go. So let's talk real quick about the whole cause of everything. Um, the flu shot. Yes. Let's. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to say right off the bat, I think Cisco was completely <laughs> nuts for forcing Odo to take that shot. I mean, how? Okay, so they made a big point about the fact that Odo would never allow himself to be scanned by Bashir. So Bashir really didn't know what his physiology was like. Uh, I mean, really. Right. But it's like, how irresponsible to shoot somebody. Uh, of course, it's ridiculous that this shot just so happens to make Odo paranoid and forget forget who he is. It's quite a coincidence. But still, it's it's kind of ir- irresponsible. You know, shooting him with something like that, where you really don't know what the results are. Right, right. I mean, it could have killed him. Yeah. So, so I guess good at the end that Odo trusted enough um, that finally let Bashir, you know, do the scans of him so he could have a better idea of what, what's inside of him. Right. So that's good. But yeah, I definitely agree with you that Bashir and Cisco were way in the wrong on that one. <laughs> Yeah, but but he had to get shot with something, or something that would make him go wacko. So right. okay, fine. Just wish they would have picked something other than a flu shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, because it is flu season here, and uh, ah. you know, it's always you always hear about. Oh, did you get your flu shot? Yeah. And then 
now I'm never going to get a flu shot again. Nah. Well. Might, might go crazy like Odo. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well. Anyway. You're not a shapeshifter, are you? We are not allowed to talk about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty much all I have to say about this one. I liked it. It was, it was, uh, it was a good uh, little one-off. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, my only uh, last comment was, and I'm sure it's been used other places, but when he was talking about how Justice is who he is and what he is, I don't know if you ever watched it, but there was a short-lived TV show called Swamp Thing. Uh, based on the DC Comics character. I had seen one or two episodes, yes. And in the opening dialogue, you know, Swamp Thing has a little um, a little monologue similar to Shatner's monologue in front of Star Trek. Sure. And it ends with the sw- him saying the swamp is who he is, it's what he is. And so ah. it was almost word for word what, what uh, Odo says here, except replace justice with swamp. <laughs> and I gotta so I gotta say, because I know you're a Swamp Thing fan, Justice sounds a little better than Swamp. Oh come on, it's Swamp Thing. Well, I know that, but a Swamp is like, you know, <laughs> just 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 doesn't sound as good. This isn't so filled with ooky things. Yes, but when you are a giant ooky thing, you know, you, you would take comfort in knowing that you're part of a greater ooky thing. <laughs> yeah, anyway. which which by the way, I don't know how Swamp Thing it talk about a comic and a concept where the original creators had a lot of creativity to make a compelling story about a Swamp Thing. That's impressive. I don't know exactly how they did it because I'm not that familiar with the comic or the TV show, but I got to say Kudos to them and their writing skills. Right. Well, the the main writer was Lynn Wynn, who does a lot of these Star Trek comics that we've read earlier. He actually wrote some of the Gold Key stuff way back when. Yeah. <laughs> Which and we is, know how much now, you love. Now that is uh, that is either an indictment or a uh, or another item, a positive thing for the resume, depending upon how much you like the Gold Keys. Right. No, I I've. I've always enjoyed Swamp Thing, but you gotta if you watch it or read it, um, you know it, it has a huge um, Frankenstein vibe. I mean, basically, ah. your main character is a monster yeah. that that doesn't have the mind of a monster, but everybody's going to perceive him as a monster. Sure. And so he's you know trying to help people, even yeah. though they don't want his help because he's a monster. You're a monster. Yeah. So, yeah, I love Swamp Thing. Love it. Cool. (laughs) Okay. Um, Is that it? Shall we move on to our two-parter? Let's do it. Okay. This is issue number 14. It's titled Dax's Comet, Part 1. Published date is September 1994. Writer is Jerry Bingham. Penciler letterer is Tim Eldred. Inker is Bruce McCorkendale. Color design, Moose Bauman and Barry Gregory. Color seps, Violet Hughes. And the editor is Mark Panacea. The cover shows Major Kira's head prominently in the center. Sisko's head and upper torso are to the left of her. DS9 is to the right. Above is a fiery object like a comet's tail. 
Below is a group of more than 10 people, probably Bajorans. Uh, the two men in front are in robes and accoutrements that give them a religious look. The rest look like a normal mix of people, dressed in some Earth Middle Ages sort of garb. The group is standing on a fractured planetary surface with erupting volcanoes in the background. The story starts in a dark cave. Two cavers that have Bajoran nose ridges are making their way along when they hear the sound of faraway voices. As the voices get louder, they see light through an opening. As they look through, they see a massive crowd of people listening to a single man speaking over a large steaming cauldron. The man appears to be some sort of high priest, and he is talking about the coming of the Battle of the Gods. He speaks of the messenger who will inspire destruction and rebirth. They who wait will wait no longer. The time has arrived. The crowd responds to him, saying, The Battle of the Gods is now. Suddenly, the cavers are spotted, and someone in the crowd yells, Uplanders! The cavers run but are caught, and brought before the high priest and six other men in similar purple robes seated around a long table. They say they cannot be allowed to leave. They could keep them alive, but they would just try to escape later. One of the two cavers say the Bajorans know of the underground dwellers. The high priest says that they are Bajorans. They are the first Bajorans. And then he backhands the caver. The high priest says he knows most Bajoran surface dwellers think of them as legend and fairy tales, but their destiny is great. He says the surface of Bajor will become an empty wasteland that they will recolonize and make great again. Meanwhile, at Deep Space Nine, we are informed via a station's log entry that many Bajorans have fled the station in fear of an impending apocalypse. The fear is spreading as the remaining Bajorans and other station inhabitants begin to fight and descend into chaos. A fight is breaking out near Quarks on the promenade. Sisko and others are attempting to handle it. Sisko calls in help from Odo's security team. Odo reports that he is busy at the moment apprehending two civilians attempting to steal a runabout. Sisko orders Quarks be shut down and Major Kira to meet him in his quarters. Sisko orders Jake and Nog, who have been witnessing the promenade violence from above, to leave to a safer location. Maybe a hollow suite or something, Sisko tells Jake. Quark almost gets his head taken off by a burly Bajoran who wants three transport tickets off the station and back to Bajor. Yes, Quark is in the transportation ticket business when there is profit to be made. Sisko meets with Major Kira. He asks for a Bajoran mythology lesson concerning the myth of the apocalypse that has the Bajorans all panicking. Kira tells him about the Battle of the Gods myth, which has it that on recurring intervals disaster comes to Bajor. Volcanoes erupt, quakes shake the planet, and large chunks of population die. Some survived by moving underground for a generation only to reemerge to a habitable surface where rebuilding took place. Between the myth and science, this cycle has been placed to occur every 2,000 years, and the anniversary is upon them. This week, in fact. 
Cisco now understands why the people are in a panic, but he is surprised the Federation has never been told about this until now. Kira offers that it's Bajoran nature to take the easy path, and that path is to disbelieve such a thing. After this chilling story of the end of the world, the station lights go out, right on cue. The lights come back on, and Ops reports auxiliary power is taken over. The source of the primary power failure disruption has been located. Kira warns that they may not find a routine malfunction. In Ops, O'Brien is working on the problem, and Dax reports the destruction of Bajor is no myth. Sisko and Kira arrive in time to see Dax's projections of the path of a comet that has been approaching Bajor for some time now. Her latest trajectory calculations put it not only passing very close to Bajor, but on a collision course with the wormhole. Though the comet is not large enough to cause lasting damage to the wormhole, the dangerous levels of radiation it will be emitting could interact with the wormhole and leave a contamination field for a hundred years. Dax reports further analysis is required to calculate the radiation field's effects on Bajor and the station. Kira whispers, the messenger returns. O'Brien shouts emotionally that they have the power to destroy the comet, so that is what they should do. Dax says by altering the cycle of the comet, they may have unknown effects on other planets, which may violate the Prime Directive. Sisko contacts Starfleet and briefs them. They will analyze the situation and advise Sisko as soon as they can. Meanwhile, underground, the underworld dwellers recognize that DS9 could affect the messenger and actually seem all riled up to protect it and thereby protect their place in future events. Wacky logic. Back on the station, Odo and his people find the source of the outage, a primitive incendiary device apparently set up by a Bajoran dressed as one of Odo's security men. He apparently got caught in the blast of his own device by mistake. Meanwhile, a delegation from Bajor arrives at the station. Sisko, Major Kira, and Dax meet their ship at Docking Bay 4. Four serious-looking Bajorans in purple robes and hoods emerge, saying they are from the Bajoran Council of Guardians. Three of them are led to Sisko's office to confer, and the other is left to stay with the ship. When they arrive at his office, Sisko bids them to sit down. The lead guardian states he asked for a private audience. Sisko says Kira and Dax take part in his decision-making processes, and they will stay. Sisko asks why they did not go through proper government channels to set up this meeting. The lead guardian says they recognize no Bajoran council, and he is part of a religious body that sees no authority other than what is bestowed upon him by the gods. Kira tries to address him, saying the government has grown quite tolerant of religious diversity, but is caught off suddenly by the bellicose leader of the guardians, who shouts, You dare address me directly? Kira asks for forgiveness and turns away from them, visibly shaken. The lead guardian says he has heard Sisko intends to stop the messenger from arriving. He tells Sisko he must not interfere. Sisko says they may not fully realize the destruction of the messenger and what it will bring, and clarifies that they are talking about a comet, not some kind of agent from a deity. 
The lead guardian states that without death there can be no rebirth. His people have been, and always will be, all about the rebirth. Sisko and company look upon them with shock and growing dread. He goes on to say Sisko thinks they are merely religious zealots. He states they are much more, and right on cue, their ship explodes while still attached to docking bay 4. A second explosion takes place in one of the docking pylons. To be continued. Oh man. An abrupt and explosive ending to this issue. Yeah, those pylons take a beating, don't they? They they do, but they always seem to be there uh, in the uh, next episode or issue. <laughs> right. Well, they got replacement pylons somewhere. Uh, yeah. Not sure where, but they keep on fixing them. <laughs> nah. I, I, I like this issue. I thought it was pretty good. I, I Me too. I thought it was a very good setup. Um, there are definitely high stakes going on here. And I think the whole... The whole myth turned into reality about uh, a recurring apocalypse. I don't know. It kind of, you know, it's kind of chilly. It, it, it's kind of chilling. It's um, it resonated with me. Hmm. Because the whole Mayan thing, or no, just... not the Mayan thing. <laughs> uh, no. <pfft>. Yeah, <laughs> the Mayan thing. The Mayan calendar. Are we still around? Yes, I think we are. Okay. Okay. It's 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 like when it clicked over to the year two thousand, same kind of thing, but you know, but 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 that's a good example. Here you go. There's a couple examples of the idea of there being a foretold uh, uh, end of the world, and you know, right. it, it's there in the back of our minds, all of our minds. Uh, that's why the two thousand was played up like that. That's why twenty twelve was brought up like that. It's all. It's a lot of it. Normally turns out to be BS. Thank God. But uh, but still, that that kind of story kind of I think resonates with a lot of people. It does with me. Right. At kind of a more primitive level. I don't know. Right. And I think that's. I mean, two of the you know newer science fiction franchises that that I know that that. You at least like one of these, and I like both, is uh, Halo and Mass Effect. And both of those play up to the the idea that our society isn't the first one, that, that you know, humans have had a go at it before, and now they're, at one point, for one reason or another, some catastrophe happened, and we got bumped down to cavemen again, and we had to start all over. So I, I like, you know, obviously that, that, that idea of... Um, Something happening and you having to start over is not new, and I like it. I I really like the idea that you know that even though we think we're the first ones to get this this far advanced, but in reality we'd already been further advanced and that got bumped back. There you go. Or or how about the uh, talking intelligent lizards that were on Earth before us? For for another example, talking intelligent lizards. Which one yeah. are you? Talking? <laughs> Are you talking about the Schley stack from Land of the Lost? No, no. Um, well, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're, we're, was that what that was? Yeah. It was supposed to be in the past. It was supposed to be in Caveman Days. And they were, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Although that wasn't what I was thinking of. But yes, another example. <laughs> what were you talking about? Well, wasn't there an episode of Voyager or something that... Uh, yeah, where the dinosaurs left Earth? Exactly, right. In the Delta Quadrant? Yeah. Right. Yeah, a little ridiculous, but it's like, I, I, you know, it, that is a thought. 
And another one that I thought was a good example, even though it was a very short-lived series, was Space Above and Beyond. Yeah, where no, Earth, no. Earth was in a war with another intelligent reptilian species, but at the, at the end of the, of the season, or at the end of the series, really, unfortunately, because it never went beyond, the ratings weren't good enough, it turns out that the people we were fighting were former inhabitants of Earth. Oh, wow. So they were the first intelligent race, or at least the only intelligent race that came from Earth that, that, that gained the ability to uh, do interplanetary travel. Uh, anyway, so that, right. Right. Many, well, I, many I, I examples thought, out there. I thought for a second you were talking about the uh, reptilian humanoid race that lived on Earth in Doctor Who. Oh, there's another example. All right. Yeah. No, I wasn't thinking of that one at all. All right. Anyways, no. I, 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 I thought this was cool. I, I like the idea that the, every two thousand years they they get knocked down a peg. Right. Back to the beginning. Right. Yeah, so um, I thought the artwork was really good. Uh, eye-popping colors. I I thought ships looked good. I thought uh, station looked good. I thought the characters looked accurate. I I I, I, I like the artwork. I, I think they take a little more time uh, with uh, with some of these Malibu comics. Yeah, now we've talked before about how the Malibu comics are more expensive than the DC comics that were coming out at the same time. Right. And, you know, I think that paper quality, you know, might be another reason why the 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 visuals look so good on these mm-hmm. comics that they may look a little muted when they're on, you know, newsprint type cheaper quality paper. Ah, mm-hmm. So that might be another reason why these these colors really are vibrant. Right. And one of my comments in here is that I like the setup a lot in this issue. And I just made the comment that I really hope that the payoff's good in the next issue. Or the next two issues. I wasn't really sure how many issues this was. Right. You know, the, the story arc. But I was just like, you know, just just a little thing in the back of my head was going, I, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that a really good setup happened. And then the payoff is not as good as you were hoping for. So I just made a little comment of that in here. I just really hope that the that the follow up issue, uh, you know, is a good payoff because the setup is really good. Right. I- I'm sure you won't be disappointed. I'm sure I won't. <laughs> right. So, did you notice that the the miners, you know, they they said that they couldn't send them back up and that they had population control, so they couldn't necessarily keep them underground. The cavers. You, yeah, yeah, the cavers. Did you see that they did show back up? Yes, later. Oh, yeah. beat up. Right, on page 17 it shows them chained to the wall, and, and you're not sure if they're dead or alive. Yeah. I mean, they're almost crucified there on the cave wall. Right. So I'm thinking they're dead. Well, they could be, uh, because until the explosion happens, you're not quite sure exactly how dangerous and nut nutbally these, uh, these underground people are. Right. Uh, you know, I, you know, obviously, some of the looks on the face of the uh, lead guardian are kind of, you know, almost uh, stereotypical villain looks. So you know he's a nutcase, but how far will these guys really go? And we're beginning to find out with explosions. Right. And, and another way you know that he's a nut, 
and uh, a, a villain yeah. is that he's bald and wearing purple. Oh, good point. And another Lex, we, is that a Lex Luthor theory? Another Lex Luthor slash Gold Key Comics. Yeah. Every time uh, there was a villain in Gold Key Comics, they were always bald, wearing purple, just like Lex Luthor. <laughs> and I think here they're they're keeping up the tradition. Yeah, and that's what it is, tradition. It's tradition, man. <laughs> Good point. I hadn't noticed that. So again, the wormhole is threatened. Although, I will say that at least they're not trying to say that the comet's impact is going to destroy the wormhole. Which, it seems like a very fragile wormhole in other storylines. But this one, at least probably the most destructive force that's been thrown at it so far, or at least lately. Uh, you know, exploding shuttle can can shut it down. Eh. I mean, this this is a, a fast moving comet, but at least they're not trying to say that the comet is going to destroy the wormhole. So that at least I'm happy about that. Um. So because that can be kind of lame. Right now, now the uh, the religious zealots they don't they don't know anything about the comet, do they? It's just da- Dax's theory about the comet at this point. Uh yeah, I don't I. I their scientific knowledge is obviously not top on their priority list, but whether because because they are kind of religiously driven people, um, whether they actually know it's a comet or that the messenger is a comet. Obviously, in the past they've seen the comet, they've called it the messenger, they've seen it in the sky. Whatever. Oh, that's right, that's right. But whether they know it's a comet, comet or not, I mean, who knows? Right. And I did like how on page 15 when Dax is giving the you know techno babble about the comet and how right. she thinks that it might um, – I mean she does say that it's on a collision course to the wormhole. But even if it doesn't actually hit the wormhole – let's see, what, what exactly does she say? Even if the comet misses the hole, radiation levels combined with the pre-existing radiation from the hole itself yeah. could leave a contaminated field in place for several hundred years. Right. So I kind of like the idea that – the comet passing by, which they say happens every two thousand years, is enough to, you know, <clears throat> cause the particles in the wormhole and the particles in the comet itself to combine, and, and then that's what radiates and destroys Bajor every two thousand years. Right, and also supports the idea that it's able to do it again in another two thousand years, because obviously, if it, you know, the first time it hits into the wormhole, well, that's probably the end of that 2,000-year cycle. If it went so, right in. <laughs> if it went right in, right. If it impacted. Yeah. Uh, odds are, I mean, well, whatever. You could, I mean, whatever. I'm not going to start talking about science at the moment. Because the idea <laughs> of going through a wormhole in the first place is patently kind of ridiculous, given the gravitational forces involved, but whatever. Yeah, but this is an artificial wormhole, Ken, created for the aliens. Uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yes, the wormhole Anybody's- aliens. Right. I, I enjoyed the, you know, the the idea of this this Cycle. merging of two different things causing. So it doesn't it isn't actually an impact on the surface with the with the comet. It's just it grazing well, by. Well, again, you know, impacting the surface would end the cycle also. So it's good that that all this grazing going on is able to keep the cycle going. <laughs> right. Yeah, an impact would pretty much stop it. Yeah. All right. I have one other thing, and and it's just kind of an odd, odd comment. When the lights start going out, Dax asks O'Brien if she wants to get Dorian up to the Brit or to the ops. 
Right. And he says, no, he's working on something else. Who's Dorian, and why would she mention him out by name? Isn't that Dr. Bashir? His name's Julian. Oh, Julian. Right. Yeah, good point. I don't know who Dorian is. Yeah, I even looked him up on uh, Memory Alpha, or Memory Beta, I forgot which one I looked him up. And the only reference of Dorian they had was this issue. Okay, so they didn't mistakenly say Dorian instead of Julian. Um, This is some kind of reference to a real crew member we've never, ever seen before. Right. That's part of... (laughs) Part of O'Brien's uh, technical team that we've never heard of or seen. Yeah, because have they, in the whole run of Deep Space Nine, did they ever introduce us to a, uh, basically a crewman Barkley, who, who's like a, another engineer that's around that we see once in a while? Uh, yeah, his name is Rom. When Rom gets promoted Rom. Into, uh, into the Corps of Engineers. Oh, that's okay. Fine. But, so yeah. you, you answered my question, but <laughs> no, I don't think they ever actually about. list one out by name. I think there's, you know, you'll see some just working on stuff every once in a while, but right, not, not someone that stands out like Barclay until okay. until Rom takes that. Does role. it right? Okay. So, um, so kudos to them actually acknowledging that there are other people on the station, I suppose, but it does seem a bit random, right? Okay. I mean, you know, instead of the just the senior staff, which we normally get to see every week or every issue. Right. Okay, I want to know if Dax spotted this comet that long ago. I mean, didn't she say something about she's been tracking it for days? She's been tracking it, yeah. Now, okay. In science, if you've got two points, you can draw a line. And I'm sure she's over probably the first day, she's been able to be able to figure out a trajectory, at least a rough trajectory. Wouldn't you think a rough trajectory that would go anywhere near the station or Bajor or the wormhole, wouldn't you think you'd bring that up to Cisco a little earlier? I don't know. Yeah, it might not be something you want to keep to yourself. Right. So, (laughs) I don't know. It just seemed a little odd. That uh, that Dax didn't bother mentioning it until just now, but I will agree with you 100 percent on that one. Yeah. yeah, and that's really the last thing I had to say about this issue. All right, great. Then I'll jump into issue 15, entitled "Dax's Comet Part Two, October of 1994" is when it came out. Uh, all the uh, staff is the same, so I'm not going to go over the credits. The cover is the second half of a panoramic picture. Uh, that goes along with issue number 14. So if you take 14, that's the, that's the left-hand side of the page, and 15 is the right-hand side. It shows the right half of the station, because we saw the left half on the previous issue. There's a shot of Dax and Bashir, headshots, and then there's a shot of Odo, and he's pictured standing with his arms crossed. There's also a picture of three runabouts on a collision course with a comet. That's uh, all that's happening in front of the wormhole. And the uh, comet's tail indeed does carry over into issue 14, and that's what uh, Ken mentioned in his synopsis. 
as his speculation that it was a comet's tail, a fiery comet tail. Which is patently ridiculous, science-wise. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that in a minute. <laughs> All right, so the story starts off with the station being rocked by the explosions at the end of last issue. O'Brien is trying to work to get the power back on. And as of now, he's only been able to get Ops and the infirmary up and running. Odo and his security forces are elsewhere in the station looking for the Bajoran terrorists that have been planting these explosives. In the commander's office, Cisco, Dax, and Kira, along with the Bajoran fanatics from the previous issue, uh, are still in the office. There's only two Bajoran figures, even though there should be three as of last issue. Uh, one of the Bajorans is on the ground. Kira admits to striking him when she felt a hand on her throat when the lights were out. The fanatical leader is telling Sisko that he has no right trying to stop the comet from wiping out life on the planet. He even quotes the Prime Directive. Sisko is not surprised by the man who has spent his whole life underground knowing about Federation policy. He seems to have known for a while that the fanatics have had spies on the station and all throughout Bajor. He has Kira escort the two to the brig. In the corridor of the ship, a few security guards have a group of terrorists cornered. Uh, there is a firefight um, in progress. The security guards are using stun, but the terrorists are not, and a security guard is taken down. Odo is able to attach himself to the wall and slither down the hallway and attack the terrorists from behind. He makes short work of the four men. In Sisko's home, he tries to contact the Federation to get assistance with the comet. They refuse, and he's left on his own. Jake and Nog return home, and Sisko orders the two to stay put. Sisko leaves to return to Ops. In the dark, he bumps into Kira, and in very shortly, the lights come back on. He informs her of the Federation's stance on the matter, and they head to Ops together. Once they arrive, Dax informs them that the comet is made out of heavy hydrogen, which they also call titrinium. And this is a substance that is only known to exist in laboratories. It's the material needed for atomic weapons. Dax confirms that if the comet continues on its current speed and direction, then it will destroy everyone and everything around Bajor. She has a plan. She thinks it's more science fiction than science fact. Sisko looks it over, and he agrees with the plan. In a simultaneous attack, the terrorists attack the airlock to Ops and the brig in order to free their leader. The guard at the brig is taken down with ease, but they're having a tough time with the door. After a time, the door looks like it's about to give way. The crew ready themselves to attack whoever comes through. With Then the booming stops. Odo's voice comes over the comm, and, and he says that he's taken out the attackers at the door, and for them to let him in. Fearing a trap, they do and are pleased to see Odo walk in with many Bajoran bodies unconscious behind him. Sisko is contacted that the fanatic leader is taking stage on the promenade. He heads off to speak with him and orders everyone to put Dax's plan into motion. Kira, Bashir, and Odo make their way to the hangar bay. On the promenade, Sisko meets with the leader who is preaching to the remaining Bajorans on the station. He tries to plead with him 
that the destruction of the planet is not the will of the gods. While this is going on, three runabouts head in formation to a certain spot that Dax has instructed. Once there, they wait for the comet. The comet is about to strike the small crafts when she orders them to put full power to shields. The comet strikes the three small crafts, but the shields deflect the comet and it passes away from the wormhole and heads towards the station. Dax then has O'Brien fire some sort of tractor beams at it and the comet is put back on its original course away from the uh, wormhole. So since it avoided the wormhole and thus does not destroy all life in the system. Then there's an epilogue. Bashir and Kira are being treated for injuries that they sustained while they were in their craft. Uh, they're not serious, but they both seem to have lost consciousness at around the time that the comet struck their ships. The terrorists have all been rounded up and are going to face trial. Dax hopes that she did send the comet back on its original heading so that it does not unexpectedly hit any other planet while on its 2,000-year trek through the cosmos. The end. Oh, that must be a heavy weight for Dax to, to live with. My God. Especially with Sisko looking at her with such concern that she'll live with that for the rest of her life. Because apparently she doesn't have enough scientific knowledge to figure out the trajectory of a comet in a single solar system. This might be a multiple solar system comet. You don't know. Yes, I do. Okay, so okay, so okay, so let me, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording. So Donovan knows a lot of what I'm going to say. Um, you know, one thing about Star Trek is sometimes you just got to turn off uh, any kind of science knowledge you may have acquired over the years and just go with it. And you know, at some point, you got to just raise a hand and go. The story is not worth the egregious bad science that they're trying to contort to fit the narrative. And uh, I, it, it's difficult for me to just um, ignore the bad science in this issue. And, and for me, it ruined it. It ruined the issue for me. So having the comet go to maybe more than one solar system over its 2,000-year orbit, uh, that threw it off for you? Well, uh, that was the worst thing. Uh, because I I don't know if you know much about comets, but comets, there's such large gulfs of space between solar systems, at least the solar systems that, that we're familiar with. Solar Comets have elliptical orbits, typically, within one solar system. Sure, they'll leave the solar system. You know, they'll, they'll go p- past Pluto or whatever, uh, but they'll come back in again. And they do not go to other solar systems. That's ridiculous. And the idea that, ooh, they can't figure out if it's, you know, this comet is going to affect another habitable planet within the sol- the Bajoran solar system seems a little ridiculous since they, I mean, how many habitable worlds are there with any kind of life are in the Bajoran solar system? I don't know, but they probably do. So... If you don't have that many planets that could be affected, maybe only one, I don't know, maybe two. Maybe right. two. Um, they can't figure that out? It's like, yeah. And then their whole thing about how they're going to alter the trajectory 
of the of the comet to miss all the sensitive things uh the planet the space station the the wormhole and then pull it back onto the right trajectory that's laughable and then how they have contorted the prime directive yet again to fit what the narrative needs uh i don't know three strikes you're out as far as i'm concerned <laughs> i don't think you like this issue well it just i don't know maybe I just get a little bit emotional about it but it's like god what do you take us for anyway of course well, i will i will also say that the uh, 2009 movie which i love but it is flawed it's patently ridiculous that the idea of a single sun going supernova would would have enough matter energy and matter to encompass even even beyond its even beyond the solar system much less eating up the the, the galaxy I don't know. but i but i accepted that but but, but you can't these, accept this i can't accept this one i don't know i'm picky i'm picky about what science ruins things for me well maybe the the next closest star to the bajoran system isn't that far away and this Unlo- this comet somehow goes between the two of them. I, I don't know. Okay, okay, that's not going to happen. I'm pretty sure, based on <laughs> what I know about this. Uh, you just got to go with about it, astrophysics. But okay, so there's two. There's two. You can't figure that out. It's like if it if it's going to put such a big weight on your shoulders, Dax, you can't. Okay, well let's do a survey of the other solar system. It's like it's not that much of an unknown. Anyway, whatever. Right. No, I'm with <laughs> you. I I get what you're saying. And I mean, some some comets that we know of that go around our solar system only show up every, you know, thousands of years or stuff. Sure. So I mean, oh yeah, sure. That that's not out of the realm of possibility. That no, no, not, that that, uh, that is not. As a matter of fact, that like you say, I mean, that's the way comets work. I mean, Halley's comet comes comes around whatever every hundred years. I forgot what the number of that is, but that is like it's got an elliptical orbit, you know. Right. That's yeah. that's perfectly normal behavior for a comet. Of course, a fiery tail and mm-hmm. a burning nucleus or whatever on a uh, on a comet, I I I question the science behind that cause See, of the, course, that, that that one to me was the harder one to swallow yeah. than the uh, the it, it could hit another planet later down the road. Right. I mean, because think about it, if she really did change the orbit bad enough that it you know, it could actually slingshot away from the solar system altogether. Yeah. Uh, I mean, then then it could be you know a rogue comet that would go into another solar system and never come back to Bajor. I mean, if she would have if, broken that that elliptical uh, circuit enough that it you know has enough speed to to make it out of the gravitational yeah. pull of the sun, then she could have endangered other. Uh. I'll agree with that. So if, which seems like a, a big if, because that would probably take a lot of uh, energy to break its orbit, but let's say they did. You're right. Uh, at the sublight speeds that comets travel at, perhaps in a thousand years, it might make it to the next solar system. Yeah, right. that's possible. But it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, because if it did, once it's out in the middle of space in between solar systems you could just fly over there and destroy it without having to worry about the radiation destroying nearby planets agreed agreed so i agree with you but that that to me 
it was the what the comet was made of, which gave me more of a of a uh, huh what <laughs> yeah. But I, I I guess I was more forgiving with the overall story than you you seem to be. <laughs> Well, not, I, not to know, say that you can't be. I'm just saying. No, yeah, and and we can continue down the list. I mean, <laughs> the, those are some of the we, we've mentioned some of the top issues with all of this. Yeah, but but the list continues. It's just, uh, yeah. Okay, so so let's say that it does break orbit, and in a thousand years it could reach another solar system. Uh, that okay, most solar systems, I think don't have life in them but let's say there is it's like you're what's the alternative you're going to allow Bajor the surface of Bajor who is a protectorate of the Federation so you corrected me before the recording session I wasn't sure if Bajor was uh, a member of the Federation or just a protectorate apparently they're just a protectorate of some kind you're gonna allow all those millions and who knows billions of people I don't know how many people are on Bajor uh, you're gonna let all those people fry um, you're going to let Deep Space Nine be destroyed with all hands aboard that couldn't get out with a ship. You're going to let all those people die because of the possibility that the the comet that you deflect its course might affect something at some point in the future? I mean, even if it stays within the solar system, it's like, that seems like a huge trade-off to ask them to do uh, in the name of this contorted prime directive. Uh, and by the way, <laughs> uh, I think Next Gen and all kinds of stories exist in the uh, Star Trek universe where asteroids and comets have been destroyed or deflected to save a population. But what? Right. No, I'm with you. Um, that is not the way you should read the prime directive. Yeah. I mean, but. If it was going to hit a planet that that didn't have pre-warp capabilities, would would you let it? Uh, if I knew that was going to happen, well, then you, like you said, you take it out in space. You know, when it's away from uh, you know Bajor and everything. Right. Yeah. Again, I've seen it go both ways. I mean, when, when we had Brian on, we talked about how in the new movie, it seems that the uh, the Enterprise crews doing something on a planet to keep a volcano from destroying a uh, a bunch of primitive people, ah. um, and how I thought that that would violate the Prime Directive because it was a natural phenomenon on right. the planet, right? And that they shouldn't interfere. But right. So if if your understanding of the Prime Directive is that which I just said, then then allowing the allowing a, a but again, it's the difference is is that one's a natural phenomenon on the planet, the other one is a natural phenomenon in space. That's in space to a civilization that you're already, you know, befriending. You're already in contact with. Right. They're they're a warp civilization. And you're right. protecting them. It's like the loss of life alone you wouldn't want to happen. Right. But right. Anyway. Yeah. I don't buy that the Federation would allow Bajor to blow up, but I also, you know, to be a hypocrite, I did complain about the two, the Into the Darkness movie not allowing that volcano to blow up. So yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I guess I don't have a leg to stand on. Well, yeah. So the the Prime Directive is not only a, a very fungible 
plot device to try to get things going the way you 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 want it to because you'll just interpret it any way you want to to fit the story. But it's also a quagmire. <laughs> I mean, in, I mean, in practical terms of how do you apply it? Yeah. Right. I mean, in in a real situation. Yep. Right. Yep. Okay. How about lightening up the mood? Uh, the phasers. I, I I know I'm I'm kind of a weapons guy, but um, the phasers at the beginning of this issue are not accurate. They look terrible. They but look then, like remote but controls. Then, well, they look remote controls or maybe a silver large version of the Type 1 phasers from the original Taz series. Right. They kind of look like that a little bit, but instead of being black, it being silver. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what? Look, you guys do so good on most of your artwork, what? What? And then, at the end of the story, or towards the end of the story, they start getting it right. You know, so the battle for the um, the station towards the end, they start carrying around phasers that look correct. They look like hand, you know, hand phasers from the uh, you know next gen Deep Space Nine era. It's like, what? So you had different. I don't know. So. The the penciler is also the letterer in this issue, Tim Eldred. Right. Which I think that's a little weird. But I, mean, I thought, well, are there two different artists involved? And it's like, no. One artist, and he's actually doing lettering duties, which is amazing. But um, it's like, so he got it wrong at the beginning, and then somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, you know, those phasers aren't quite right. You may want to make <laughs> it look more like this. It's like, oh, okay. And then he gets it right. You know, in the middle towards the end. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, well, who knows? So, Odo taking three guys out with one punch, kind of like what we were saying in the previous issue. Odo is quite a formidable character, and uh, he's cleaning up, you know, he's kicking butt and taking names in this issue. Yes, he is pretty awesome. I do like yeah. that shot there. What, what what is it? Page seven, the one you're talking about, where he right. takes out all four with one punch. Right. They yell out "heathen" and then boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I thought it was. I liked it. Yeah. What I didn't like was that a lot of times before he showed up and before we saw him, they kept doing like this weird shadow thing, like the shadow falls upon those. Um, security officers, right? And then they like they act like they're surprised, like like it's not Odo in his normal form. So I was never sure if maybe he was in a different form, and that's what startled him. And then he reverted back. I, well, I well, that shadow we see, and I think I think the shadow you're talking about on page six. Well, that's one it, of them, right? It was well, on the previous but, page too. Okay, but. But the shadow, if that's indeed the shadow, makes him look like he's a big beach ball. I mean, is that the shadow? That, I that wasn't big sure. orange thing? Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was the shadow or if that was him merging to the wall so that he could then slither down the hallway to... Ah, okay, that's, okay, that's probably it. That's right, so that's when he left. That's when right. he went off on his, his thing and he became the orange blob slithering across the wall. Okay. Yeah. But anyways, it was always kind of – it was a little hard to follow what what was startling them and things like that. Right. So maybe that's how he was getting around all, all along. 
slithering down the wall. <laughs> Maybe, but uh, but there are scenes where he other parts of the the issue I think where you, they show him running down the hall. Right. Oh well. I like it's, it. it's it's handy to be Odo. I'll tell you. Yes, I, I do still have a problem that he has a communicator and that it somehow conveniently disappears when he's going through little you know drains and things like right. that. Right. Right. Uh, yep. So. so so he obviously obviously his clothes his uniform is him. Yeah, he's naked. It's not it's not a separate thing. It's he he makes his clothes. But how do you how you know, how how do you make a electronic device out of uh your own goop? Yeah. Good question. Right. It's one of those things you don't worry about. <laughs> like, but I have to worry about it. There you go. Major Kira and Odo, towards the end, go and draft Bashir. You know, why do you need to grab the doctor yeah, to right. pilot it? I mean, aren't there other people on the station? Do you have to always have the top six or seven characters? You know, the, the command staff, whatever. Those are the only people that can do anything. Have you never watched Star Trek, Ken? Of course that's all they can do. <laughs> the captain has to go down to the planet... Because yeah, I know. I know. Just I know. see some sort of emissary that you know can't just send a red shirt to be the emissary for the captain. He has to be down there. I know. I know. I know. But <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I just, it's like he's a doctor. It's like <laughs> he's kind of a valuable resource to be on this ship. You know, whatever. Okay. And actually, that is kind of an interesting thing about ongoing comics that are a bit, you know, taking things forward from from the 2009 movie. Uh, McCoy doesn't want to go on away missions. He doesn't want to go on landing party duty. And I, and I think Scotty had hesitation too, depicted. Anyway, just bringing up the, the, the point that, you know, he is a doctor. He's pretty valuable to stay on the ship. This chief engineer is really important. He should probably stay on the ship, you know. But. Right. Yeah. And, and, and Bashir even makes the comment, I have to be in the, infirmary because we have all these hurt people from the exactly. explosions. Right. Well, right. if you don't fly this ship, we're all dead anyway, so you don't have any help people. You don't. Well, you won't be able to help anybody anyways. And he's like, well, yeah. okay. <laughs> because nobody else exists on the station. Yeah. That can, right. you know, that can fly a runabout. Unlikely. Yeah. Yep. Okay, good point. I don't know that I mentioned this or not, but this just underscores what chaffs my hide about this whole poor science is at the just contorted to fit the the narrative at the very end Cisco is looking with great concern at Dax and talking about how he's concerned about Dax because if her calculations weren't just right and put the comet exactly on the right path you know people and life forms and planets could die and it's like oh my god so you know, like the overacting well, you've you've contorted science to to fit everything so far, and now you're going to make a big stinking dramatic point of how Dax has to live with all this, and it's like, good lord, no, she doesn't, because it's BS. All right, I, I I will agree with you on that one. All right, I just I just thought I'd mention that. But what sanctimonious poo poo? <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about on the previous page, on page twenty three, where. The comet actually strikes the three shuttles and oh, then just God. bounces off. <clears throat> Let, okay, so now that since you brought that up, let's talk about that. 
Yeah, it's it's an Let's interesting talk about it briefly because we've really beaten this one up. Yeah, we probably have. <laughs> so so there's two panels on page twenty three. Uh-huh. The one panel in the middle of the page shows and I didn't catch this the first couple times I looked at this panel, but you pointed it out to me, so thank you. It shows the comet coming towards the bottom of the page because you see the tail, the fiery tail from a comet. Ridiculous. Um, and it hits kind of a horseshoe-shaped, you know, clear blob in space or whatever, and it's completely bounced uh, and, beca- and starts going to the right of the panel. So obviously it's been clearly deflected. And if you look at the clear kind of blob that shows space behind it, it's got the silhouettes of the three uh, runabouts. So yeah, again, Federation shields are amazing things. (laughs) Well, they needed three of them working in tandem to somehow create a super shield. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) It's not not described very well. And in fact, like you said, if you didn't really look at those three little specks on that, in that one panel, you might not catch that that's supposed to be the the runabouts, right? Because they're 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 not drawn in any detail at all. They're so small, right? And then you've got in the next panel beneath, um, Deep Space Nine firing, uh, I guess, tractor beams. Something. It doesn't even say what it is. No, uh, but it looks like beams going out, um, and the trajectory looks like it's being kind of drawn. Uh, more towards the uh, Deep Space Nine, so I, I, I'm voting for tractor beams, but like you say, they don't say. And then it looks like again, the trajectory of the comet is altered, so yeah, yep. very handy. <laughs> very handy, because I don't know, I, I think just the placement of Bajor and Deep Space Nine and the wormhole is makes what they're trying to do very difficult to do, but whatever. I don't know. Right, because Deep Space Nine is not that close to Bajor. I mean, they've, they've talked about how it's, you know, it, it used to be right above Bajor, but then they moved it in the first episode so that it's closer to the wormhole. Right. So, I mean, there is no transport, you know, you can't teleport to Bajor, so it's not close at all okay, i mean it right it might be close as far as you know it's the next planetary object but it's still a good ways away right so i i always find it funny when they kind of talk about them being so so close right yep well whatever whatever you have to say to to fit the uh story so right and, and by the way i do not profess to be an astrophysicist in some of my comments but I mean, I, I think I think we've all been exposed to enough Nova episodes to know a few things about science. Nova is that even on anymore? It is the old PBS show. Yep, still on PBS. Uh, I yes, I believe so. Yes, oh, that's cool. Although I hardly ever see B- PBS anymore. Yeah, no, why would you no watch time. it when you have Discovery Channel and the Learning Channel where you can watch Pawn? <laughs> you can watch what? Their programming has changed. <laughs> Pawn Stars and Honey Boo Boo. <laughs> yeah, because those are those are learning, right? The, uh, Honey Boo, that 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 stupid reality show about people in some southern state, Honey Boo with Honey Boo Boo in it. That's on the Discovery Channel. 
I thought it was on the Learning Channel. I'm, oh my god! I, I don't know. I never watched it, but I know well, that maybe show, learning about disabilities. What? They all, they all, all those channels that are supposed to be about science and learning and stuff show reality shows that have nothing to do with science or reality. Ah. Uh. Well, you know, another thing is some of those episodes, some of those things that I've seen, which look a lot like the traditional stuff you'd see on PBS, Nova, and other kinds of science shows. It seems like they're really dumbing things down. I mean, really dumbing them down for the audience. But whatever. That's this is not uh, science cable science uh, review. So <laughs> it's on TLC. So that is the Learning Channel. Okay, TLC. Okay. Nice, makes right? perfect sense. It's it makes as, it makes as much sense as putting BS acting wrestling on the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh yeah, WWE baby. Yeah, which All is right. patently ridiculous. Let's let's get some real science fiction back on the Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the Elsewheres if that's okay, because we Please. this did start up the new season, season uh, four, I believe. Uh, so it starts off with last weekend of September, first weekend of October was the two-parter The Search, which opened up season three, actually, not season four. And this was the first we ever saw of The Defiant, and we learn about the Jim Hadar and the uh, founders and the uh, and all, the, all that stuff. So it kind of sets up the Dominion War. Cool. And I do love me the Defiant. I will agree. I liked it. That is a tough little ship. Yeah, do they call it the Defiant in issue in episode one, or is it later? Because I think it's supposed to be an experimental craft at the beginning. Right. Um, I, I don't recall that detail, but I do know that the synopsis does say, Cisco takes the new USS Defiant into the Gamma Quadrant to find the mysterious leaders of the Dominion. Ooh. Blah, blah, blah. So the synopsis okay. refers to it as the Defiant, but I don't know. Right. And if, if I, they if they don't call it the Defiant right off the bat, they do it pretty quick. The first right. in the first episode, I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I couldn't remember. And I also remember at first they had a Romulan on board because I think it was a woman because she was in charge of the making sure the Federation didn't abuse the cloaking technology. Oh, but we've had like, it since third season of Taz. She disappears. Without any explanation, fairly quickly, if I remember. Yeah. So, anyways, first first uh, couple episodes of this season was good. Um, not to say that the later ones aren't. So the third episode was House of Quark, where <laughs> Quark has to marry a Klingon woman. Yeah. I remember the details right. She, her husband died, and she needed to marry somebody in order to keep the her power or whatever. So she picks him. Yeah. What what an interesting odd couple. <laughs> uh, for a little Ferengi, but spineless Ferengi and a Klingon woman. Right, right. Oh, and a guy, oh. and a Klingon named Dagor challenges Quark to a battle. <laughs> oh, it just oh, kept getting he's better. Really in, he's in love with her or something like that. I think it's a jealousy thing, right? I don't remember. I, I don't remember the episode at all, quite frankly. I'm just reading about it. Okay. Uh, it's been a long time since I've watched these, so they're yeah. kind of rusty. Right. All right. Next up, Equilibrium uh, came out October 23rd, and this was a Trill episode. So Dax has to go back to Trill. I guess she was having some nightmares or something about 
a previous host or a previous symbiote. I, I don't remember. A secret from Dax's past could mean the end of the current host's life. It's not the one where she's accused of murder, is it? I think that's a different one, because that's more of like a trial uh, episode. I don't remember, but this seems like more of a health thing. Yeah, I think this is the one where they go to Trill and actually, you know, see like the how the worms go in and out of people. Eh. <laughs> All right, and then the next one, Second Skin, uh, where Kira is kidnapped by some Cardassians. And they try to convince her that she's actually a Cardassian. So they try to make her think she's a secret agent and that she's... Uh, I think they try to implant some memories into her. Right. And they turn her into a Cardassian. And this is all to support to expose Leggett Gaynor as a traitor? Hmm. Yeah, so, so you always want to... Power, power play. You always want to pick your biggest enemy to try to help you with something like this. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all right, I'm just trying to keep this brief because we're kind of going on long. Sure, uh, go. That's actually the last episode for this this time period. Cool. So uh, let's see, what are we doing next week, Ken? Let's check the old calendar. So next week, ongoing. We're doing Countdown to Darkness number two and more of the ongoing. So issues... Uh, 17. All right, so yeah, that'll be episode 113. So we'll do ongoing 17 and countdown to darkness number two. Cool. I love the countdown to darkness, finding out new things about the upcoming movie. Right, and and just how does Robert April fit into all this? Exactly, and and Donovan, why? Of course, by the time this comes out, everybody's gonna know all this stuff. But how do you know that Robert April is involved in the movie? Well, but. Well, because when we did episode 109, we, he was on the last panel of the, uh, the issue. There you go. So the first issue of Countdown to Darkness. That's right. Right. So I don't necessarily think he's going to be in the movie itself. I mean, if you, if, if you look at Countdown to the yeah. 2009 movie, Picard, Geordi, Data, all these people were in it. They didn't make it to the movie. So yeah, I don't know true. why yeah, right. why people are all up in arms that April's going to be in the movie because he was in – the comic book. Well, what about the the theory that's out there, whether right or wrong, it is a theory, because nothing's confirmed, that uh, Peter Weller might be playing April. I could see that. I mean, he, he looks a little like April, but he doesn't, he well, doesn't he, look he's, like April he's probably in the, the right. Book. He's probably the right age. Right. But do you think he looks like April? Well, who, well, well, how many times has April been depicted? I mean, what, what's canon for that? So he right, was in the exactly. cartoon series... He's series. been in some comic books, so who knows what he's really supposed to look like. Exactly. And, but to be honest, the, the April in Countdown to Darkness number one looks nothing like Peter Weller. So no. I, he he, he looks quite burly. Right. He looks like a pretty burly, vibrant, in-shape kind of older guy. And so, quite frankly, the pictures I've seen of Peter Weller, he doesn't look quite that burly. No, he looks like RoboCop. Ah, wait, what? Wait, okay, hold on. Yeah, well, the face-wise, yeah. But he looks he looks like he's a pretty... Every time I've seen him in the last several years, he looks a little on the skinny side. He's a skinny dude, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. he doesn't look like a, a muscular, burly kind he, of He does uh, not look like Robert April, so I'm not... I think people are just grasping straws. Right, right. So, But we'll talk about that next week. I mean, we did talk about that a little bit in episode 109, but we're just rehashing stuff. 
Right, True. Ken? Right, Donovan. So uh, until next week, guys, hope everybody enjoyed this episode. Sorry we beat it up so much. And uh, Well, just the last issue. That's all. We just yeah, beat up the last issue. The other ones we were fine with. Matter of fact, oh. we liked the first two. Right. I did. I, I, I liked all three. Although I do, I will concede with you on some of the, your nitpicks. Nitpicks? <laughs> I don't think they're nitpicks. Okay. <laughs> see you. See everybody. Take care, Bye. everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get